And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Smart Money Circle. I'm your host, Adam Sarhan. With me today is Heather Locus, CPA, CFP, CDFA, and National Divorce Practice Group Leader at BDP, with over $4 billion in assets under management. Heather, thank you very much for coming on the show today. I appreciate the opportunity. So, Heather, can you begin by uh, telling us your story and how you got involved in the business? Yeah, well, it wasn't my initial chosen career path, but I think rather like most things that end well, it was a result of a plan that didn't go quite as expected, but I took advantage of multiple opportunities that happened through detours. I started in public accounting right out of college. In high school, I decided I wanted to be a CPA, um, went four years of undergrad, took my CPA right when I finished, started in a big six accounting firm, which dates me. This was the early 90s and was an audit. And quickly in my first year, found a mistake at a Fortune 500 company that actually made them restate their financials. And what came out of that was my audit team was so happy because they rarely saw mistakes material enough to change. But it was going to result in potentially some people losing their job. And I just, it was such a disconnect. Like I got, I wanted a career where I helped people, not where I felt like it was. Um, people were happy when something didn't go well. So I had no idea what I wanted to do. And that was a very unsettling feeling. And I started looking in the paper and saw ads for American Express, potential preferred and started taking the CFP classes at night. And then uh, the big six accounting firms had started a little bit of wealth management, but not significant. So I couldn't get a transfer from audit to wealth management. So I ended up leaving. I went to a local firm. I was in Houston in tax at the time to get better experience and finished my CFP, took my Series 7. And when I wanted to actually start doing wealth management, I couldn't get anybody to hire me. And I could only get them to hire me to be their admin assistant or to push their investment products. So I started my own financial planning practice. I was 24 and I went with an independent broker dealer. I paid $4,000 myself for my first computer. Um, But it it worked out and I really enjoyed that for three years. And then my husband at the time had an opportunity to join the Secret Service here in Chicago. We were in Minnesota and I had realized that 27, I managed about 10 million of assets and that felt like a lot, but I didn't have anybody to learn from since I was on my own. So I took the opportunity here in Chicago and was very, very fortunate to read a one inch ad in the Chicago Tribune for Mark Palasa. And at that time in 1998, he had $150 million of assets. I was the fifth person. And now we have over 65 awesome team members, and we manage over $4 billion assets for 1,000 families nationwide. Wow, I love it. What a great story. So uh, you overcame a few, uh, I guess, obstacles, and I love the fact that you were able to persevere. What drew you or what was the attraction to wealth management opposed to other directions you could have gone? I think, well, definitely my tax background was helpful um, and, and wanting to help people with that. Also, in you know college, I started as a waitress. I was one of my favorite jobs. I worked at a bank. I awarded financial aid at the college, you know, in the office at the college that I worked at. I was a tutor for accounting. So I feel like in wealth management, I get to use all these awesome things I've used, learned from every job I've had since I was 16 and probably before that. Because wealth management is really combining all those facets of people's financial life to really create a plan that's in line with their true values and what's most meaningful to them, how they define a full life, and then creating the plan 
and executing in all areas to make it happen in the most efficient way. Gotcha. No, it's a fantastic thing. And then, of course, the um, it sounds like the intellectual side of it, too, or the intrigue was there. And that seed was planted from an early age, and you had the focus to go after it. It's a great way of getting involved. So, Heather, can you tell us a little about your investment strategy, please, and your process? Yeah, well, the investment strategy, obviously, is critical. It's the, it's the core of our business. Um, but what we feel is even more important, client by client, is truly the plan. So we always start with asking them what is most important to them. How do they define a full life? And then crunching the numbers to figure out what type of returns do we need to get into the portfolio to make that happen. Um, From the investment side, we would say we very actively manage passive portfolios. We typically implement with mutual funds that are institutional in nature, meaning retail investors can't get them on their own. The benefit of that is that they're low cost. They're very tax efficient. Um, you don't have to worry about retail investors, you know, having cash flows in and out at bad times in the market. So we use those institutional mutual funds, exchange traded funds, primarily for our portfolios. We look at our portfolios. We do detailed calculations on every single client account every two weeks to look for rebalancing opportunities for tax loss harvesting. We use a lot of Dimensional Fund Advisors, DFA, um, because we like their Nobel Prize award-winning research um, from Eugene Fama and Ken French. Really core to our investment philosophy is having the independence as CPAs. Um, All of my founding owners are CPAs. That We really wanted the opportunity as markets evolve, as investment vehicles evolve, to pick what was going to be best to serve our clients. So in the 20 plus years that I've been with BDF, we've used the combination. Sorry, keep going. Sorry. Sorry about that. Keep going. We've used a combination of um, active mutual funds, passive mutual funds, index funds, ETFs, individual stocks, individual bonds. We've been in money market funds. We truly tailor our approach first based on what's happening in the stock market and what's happening in the bond market. That strategy is set by our our investment committee. Mark Bloss is our chief investment officer. Chad Carlson is our director of research. And we have three other key people that spend a lot of time on that. But our 25 wealth managers are the ones that really focus client by client, looking at what holdings they have when they come to us assigning, you know, assessing really from a risk profile what's going to make them sleep reasonably well in bad markets and sleep well in good markets and achieve that individual plan that they have. So it's a combination of all of those pieces that gets the right fit investment strategy for the client, no matter how the markets evolve. Gotcha. No, that's a great approach. And then you said every two weeks you rebalance or you look at the, you look at the portfolios and for tax loss harvesting and see what other ways to, to adjust it. Now, when you look at every two weeks, and I love how you said you actively manage passive investments, would you consider yourself more active or more passive in the investment approach? It, we really are a hybrid of both. We take the benefits of both, so low cost, tax efficiency, global diversification of index and passive funds, but we take the benefits of being proactive and thinking about what's going on in the markets, especially like you know now with bonds over the last few years, we've had many more changes in our bond portfolio than we've had in our stock portfolios just because of the interest rate cycles and, you know, them declining for many years, then starting to increase last year unexpectedly declining. 
all of those things do warrant changes in the portfolio. But to your point about looking at the portfolio, our team does detailed calculations on every single client every two weeks. And the team that's looking at them knows that client intimately. So they look to see, you know, are they off on small value versus large growth? Should we rebalance? You know, of course, meaning you sell high, like right now on large growth, and maybe rebalance to emerging markets. But we take into consideration, well, is that client likely going to have a deposit? Do they just get a year in incentive comp bonus? Do they have monthly deposits from maintenance payments or you know some other cash flow that we should take into consideration and not do a trade and incur taxes when maybe we could adjust the portfolio with the future cash flow? Um, we do find usually a couple times a year when we're doing those calculations, we do need to make that rebalancing trade. Sometimes when we have you know bad markets like December of 2018, obviously 19 was a great year, but December of 2018 was a, a tough month. There can be opportunities to make changes in the portfolio strictly for tax purposes. That doesn't change that client's risk profile, but can give us some tax advantages. So the, the importance of looking every two weeks is to identify the right time, but that only typically results in trades maybe three to seven times a year, depending on the markets and the specific client. Oh, that's very interesting. So it's more of a longer term approach, but you, you're making sure that you're checking in every two weeks to make sure that everything is in alignment, so to speak. Exactly. And that's client by client. Of course, you know, our chief investment officer and director research, first thing they do every day is look at all of our portfolios, look at our target strategy based on market conditions, how are our holdings doing to, you know, similar holdings for a given asset class, like large growth versus large growth, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal, reading a bunch of <laughs> data and stuff. Um, so we're, they're constantly monitoring our portfolios. But in terms of really investing in trades, we are long-term investors. Again, going back to that planning, if you have the right plan and the right strategy for that specific client, you shouldn't have to trade multiple times through the years. There's going to be some, but it's not constantly trading. That's not tax efficient. It typically results in lower returns. So on and so forth. Understood. Exactly. So help me understand a little bit, Heather, if you if you don't mind, with the planning portion versus the investment portion. So you begin with the plan. So let's say, for example, uh, you're in Chicago, you want to go to California, you know you're going to go west, not east. So once you know you, the client's plan, then you build the portfolio to meet those objectives, to make sure you're going west in that example. Is that correct? That's correct. What's interesting, and I was fortunate to figure out pretty early um, in my career, it was after short, about a year after I joined Mark Palasa, is how important it is to give clients time to reflect and to ask the right questions. So what I, you know, when I had my own practice, I had one client that was over a million dollars. I joined Mark Palasa, our minimum is a million dollars. So that was a big change. And what I realized in working with some clients is one of their biggest challenges was the fact that our typical client, first generation wealth, earned it themselves, did very well. But then once they accumulate money, there's challenges with that, especially if they were fortunate enough to earn it and save it in their 40s and 50s, because often they might have teenage children at home and they want to enjoy the wealth they've created, but they don't want to wreck their kids' work ethic. And, uh, you know, they struggle with, they can afford, you know, nice tickets for the U.S. Open or the Super Bowl or whatever they want to go to. But is that really in line with their values? And so out of that, what I did was I took a year long 
executive coaching training program because oh, I realized our our clients often they have enough money or they have the habits and discipline that they will have enough money, but they don't always know how they want to spend it. And there's this internal conflict of growing up with not nearly as much money as they have now. And what does that say about them and how do they want to spend it? So that really led us to focus on asking the right questions up front. And a typical person is so busy, you know, with work and kids. And if they're married, just taking care of the home that they don't sit down and say, what is important to us? What do we want long-term and reflect on how they have spent their money over the last three months, six months here. And so working with an advisor who does the planning creates that infrastructure. Yeah, that's a really, we always start there. Understood. That's a really, really good point. I have a, a book coming out called Psychological Analysis and the idea is to help people make better, smarter decisions with their money. And part of one, one piece of it is what you just touched upon where most people are, there's a disconnect or a conflict between where they are today financially once they've quote unquote made it and where in their minds they were at growing up from their childhood. So I call it the childhood foundation with respect to money. And there's a, it needs to be adjusted because as a successful adult with money, it's not the same outlook on life and look at relationship with money than you were with no money as a child. So th- that needs to definitely be addressed. Exactly. Yeah, those unco- unconscious money habits and values we learned do influence the decisions people make today and how they parent their kids and what money values they teach them. So we like to talk about that and make that much more conscious. And then, you know, once we've asked them the questions and do the plan, you know, then crunching the numbers is fun, showing them how they get there. We do Monte Carlo analysis. So that's really modeling in the fact that, you know, unfortunately, the markets don't just give us nice level six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10% returns every year that some years, as we all know, they lose 25. Some right. years they make 28, like last year, et cetera. Right. And so we model in that volatility on the stock side and the bond side. And again, it's based on whatever stock and bond allocation each client has, whether they have 62% stocks or 45% stocks. And that shows them what's the probability that they'll have X amount of investment assets at age 93 or 100 or whatever the age they want us to run it to. And that helps us make much more meaningful decisions because it helps us understand the risk they need in the portfolio to meet their goals. We do that model at a bunch of different stock and bond allocations. It helps us understand if they have, you know, 200% of what they need, then, you know, could they do more gifting? Could they help more people more? Could they retire early? Can they buy that second home? And if the numbers aren't as successful as we want, we usually target in general 80 to 90%, depends on the client age. But if they're not that successful, then how can we make changes, hopefully small changes earlier to reach their goals? So work a little longer, save a little more, downsize the house, um, you know, spend a little less work, you know, maybe they still retire at the age they want to, but work part-time. So modeling that really is helpful to them and to us to not only create the plan, but to be disciplined in following it. When we do have those bad markets like 2008 or 2001, you know, helping them stick to what we agreed to, what we planned on, and giving them, again, the longer-term vision of what this impact and how this will look, so not getting too caught up in the moment in good markets or in bad markets. Right. That makes perfect sense. So um, I guess the next question, how do you handle risk and what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? Yeah, well, first, it's uh, first and most important is defining risk. So, you know, we tend to think of risk as stock market individuals, like an individual concentrated stock where it could go bankrupt, like Lehman Brothers. But and 
equal but very different risk is not having your money invested and not earning. And we call it growing broke safely, where people are too conservative, especially in just cash or money market, and they're not getting enough returns to outpace inflation. So there's no way they will have enough assets. Um, so we're always balancing, you know, the yes, stocks go up and down a lot more than bonds, but you need that security in bonds. And again, the biggest risk is not living life the way you want. So we feel it's an equal error on our part if clients die with $20 million and didn't enjoy their wealth the way they wanted to, as it is as if they ran, run out of money. But in, in terms of more technical stuff with uh, investment portfolio, we, we really believe while there's lots of fancy products on ways to hedge risk, ultimately the cost of those, the true management cost, the tax inefficiency, and the fact that you really have to basically pay for the insurance to hedge the portfolio the whole time. And most people don't want to do that in good markets. And then when they need the protection the most, they've given up because they felt like they didn't need it. So the bottom line is we don't use those types of vehicles. We really look at how much do we need to have in cash or very short-term high-quality bonds so that we know no matter what happens, we have plenty of liquidity that we can ride out a 2008 or any loss of job, any disability, whatever it is. Um, and then how much should we have in you know, more short and intermediate bonds that are going to roll out pace inflation over time? And how much should we have in stock for that long-term growth? We also, of course, look at what life insurance, disability, long-term care insurance is appropriate for their needs. We don't sell any insurance. We're a completely independent registered investment advisor firm. The only money we take is from our clients. So we're, again, completely conflict-free, fiduciary duty. But assessing the risks and having appropriate insurance or choosing what you can self-insure and then having, again, cash or CDs to do that is is critical. So... That's a really good point, Heather. So I have a question before we go forward. It's a little bit off in a different direction, but I want to help clarify and understand. You're big on how do you define a full life and big on divorce advice. So on this topic of risk and your expertise is being divorced and not a lot of people focus on that. Can you speak a little about some of the, I guess this might tie in the next question as well, the timeless lessons you've learned along the way, but can you plug a little bit of that education on how do you define a full life and what you see from divorce situations into the mix to help educate the audience? Yeah, I mean, you know, as you said, we start with defining a full life, really focusing on what you really want, funding your bucket list, having courage to talk about money. But part of that then is also having a plan B for so many reasons, whether you're a breadwinner or a non-breadwinner, Having a plan B when things don't go the way you want is critical. And that could be, especially if you're a non-breadwinner, that could be a loss of the spouse who was the breadwinner. So making you sure you have insurance and making sure you understand the financial aspects in case you're suddenly put in that situation. I met a lady yesterday who's 50 years old and her 51-year-old husband you know, died of a heart attack 14 months ago and she has a 15-year-old son. I mean, that's not what you expect, but it, we all know that happens. Of course, with the divorce practice group that I lead, the focus is you know helping people through the process. But more important is people when they before they get married having conversations about money. You know, I'm a big fan of being very transparent on what you own and owe, what your values are about money, if appropriate, having a prenuptial agreement because I believe that makes stronger marriages. I actually I write for Forbes on divorce, and I have a a, a blog on 
why prenups and postnups create stronger marriages as well as prevent disastrous divorces. But we really encourage both spouses, whether they're the breadwinner, not brother, man, women, whoever, to understand at least the basics of the finances because you never know when something's going to happen. And frankly, for the breadwinner, I would tell them, even though, yes, you can go earn money and you're maybe not as much at risk, if your spouse doesn't know anything about the finances, if your spouse doesn't have some earnings capacity, first of all, if you pass away, they're, you're, you're obviously leaving your spouse in a situation you don't want to. And if for whatever reason you do want to get divorced, you are going to have a much harder divorce. It's going to be much more expensive during the process and beyond. So it's to everybody's benefit to have you know at least a, a basic understanding of finances and money and what things cost and ideally some earning capacity. So no matter what happens, no matter how many life, you know curveballs life throws, that they they can take care of themselves. Yeah, that's a really good point. So um, before I move forward, Heather, I'm curious, what, how do you define a full life? And oh, well, I'm, I'm blessed with two teenagers um, that teach me something new every day, <laughs> sometimes hard lessons and sometimes really fun lessons. So, you know, just getting a little bit of their time and a hug is so important. Um, I love to run on the lake and I love to sit on my patio and the burbs. I'm fortunate that uh, I personally was not fortunate to go through a very unexpected divorce, but I have had a lot of silver linings from it. Part of it is just a more intimate awareness of how we could much better help people through the divorce process. I had started our women's service team 15 years ago, which was to help widows and female business owners, executives, as well as women transitioning through divorce. And then nine years ago, when I got divorced, I realized we could do so much more, men, women, breadwinners, non-breadwinners, through the process and beyond. Um, so, I mean, my honestly, my perfect day is getting to see my kids in the morning, uh, take them to school, have breakfast. It helps somebody with a meaningful decision, especially like in a work context, or I get referred to a lot of people are going through divorce that may or may not be looking for us for investment management. But when I get to help them balance the financial tax and legal components with the emotional and relational, like that's my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Um, and then I'm blessed to be reburied and, you know, would love to watch the sunset with a glass of wine with my husband and go for a long walk. I love it. I love and then. And then get a hug for my kids before they go to bed. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> so uh, what are some timeless lessons, Heather, you've learned along the way that you'd like to share? Um, well, I think, you know, always having that plan B in reserves. And when I talk about reserves, it's time and money and energy. And part of that is if, you know, things go really wrong, you have the reserves to do it. But when things are going right, I mean, what I see mistakes people make in their careers or life and, and also with the market is they don't identify and take advantage of opportunities. I mean, great opportunities are never convenient and they never feel great. And you want to be strategic and thoughtful, but I've seen, you know, in people with their careers, it's like they don't want to take that extra time to do that whatever with the client or take that opportunity to do a podcast like this. I mean, it, you know, I'm never sitting at my desk just waiting for something. I'm always busy and I have to make time for those things. In the markets, like 2008, it was the people that, you know, had the reserve of cash and felt confident that they could even take advantage of that bad market. Um, so always a reserve of time and money and energy and be thoughtful about being opportunistic. I love it. And I love what you just said about it's never convenient, those great opportunities. Can you explain a little bit more? I, I'm assuming there's a psychological component to that. 
Is it a convenient standpoint from how you feel about the investment at the time? Or is it convenient from where you are in your life and your plan? Or is it convenient from where the actual underlying investment is in the market? In other words, it's near trading near a 52-week low or it's undervalued or the market's in a bear market. I mean, can you just explain a little bit deeper on what you mean by a great opportunity is never convenient? And if you can, can give an example, that'd be fantastic as well. Um, well, a couple things. So at a, a broad base, I mean, it, it's interesting. If you it, When people hear, like, you don't want to uh, buy high and sell low, like, people know that. But I can tell you working with clients in general, they want to get more aggressive when the market's high and get more conservative when the market is low. Right. And when people have, ca- you know, some cash on hand, you don't have a lot of cash on hand because it doesn't earn very much. But when you have cash and when you have enough funds, and again, the market drops, whether it was December of 2018 or whether it was 2008 or 2001, you have that reserve of cash or even short-term bonds that you can redeploy it and buy when the market's down. But in that situation, it's like people don't feel comfortable and confident. That's where having an advisor that takes the motion out of investing can really help. Um, in terms of uh, like life opportunities, what I just see is people are so busy, you know, they're so busy, not just on their phones, but with work and kids and school and, you know, travel soccer and all of those things that they, they get caught up in the busyness that sometimes people miss either that, like that opportunity again, to, to take an opportunity for work or to get more education or something that's really going to propel their life forward in some context. But also I see it with, people who don't have a plan, like I just, I just had a new family come to us. They have 4 million of assets. The parents are in their late forties and they've done a great job of saving, but they have 2.6 million in a target retirement date fund. That's 2020. That's like retiring now. That's right. very, very conservative. And it's not really appropriate for their risk standpoint, but they, you know, nobody's looking at the details of what it's invested in. So they're missing out on all these opportunities in the market and stocks last year because they're too conservative and they really don't even understand it because they're busy with life and they've done a good job of making money, but small tweaks can make, you know, over time can really add up. Understood a hundred percent. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well that, and I would just say that, you know, like with tax planning opportunities and, and again, that's why it's so important that we look at the portfolios every two weeks, even though it's rare that we're actually going to trade because we get that opportunity where one asset class is down or, you know, the general market's down and we can and harvest a loss or avoid a year-end distribution and save on the taxes. I mean, one thing is people get so focused on trying to get a higher return, they miss that a lot of investing is just paying low cost and paying as little tax as you legally can. <laughs> um, but being strategic, sometimes we want to pay a little more tax early if that's going to reduce long-term taxes. Right. So having the plan, being strategic, continuing the execution. You know, we also we talk a lot about our goal is to hit very consistent singles and doubles. The harder we try to hit a home run, the more likely we are to strike out. So if we just you just stay in the game, hit those consistent singles and doubles, and you're likely gonna have a very full life winning game. I love it. That's really, really, really good advice. So I guess uh, my next question for you, Heather, would be: What are some timeless mistakes? I know you've mentioned a few so far. Uh, that you see people make in or out of the market, and how do you avoid them? You know, uh, something that I see mistakes that wealthy investors make is not 
talking to their kids about money and raising financially intelligent children. And you know, one of the best things you could do for your own retirement is to raise self-sufficient children. So I'm really fascinated about that topic for many reasons, but I'm big on psychology and I'm also big on, on the whole link between the children's view on money and then the adult's view on money. How do you define raising health or how would you suggest ra- raising healthy financial children or having children have healthy financial views or attitudes or values or a relationship with money? How would you go about doing that as far as like practical advice you can give people? Yeah, well, I mean, the first important thing is to model the behavior you want. And so, you know, 90% of money values are learned by nonverbal, like watching what you do. So being really thoughtful about how you're spending money and, you know, explaining to them why, you know, communicating your money values, talking to them about what you learned growing up and why and why you're making certain decisions. Because we all know kids, you know, because they have such a different paradigm and life experience because they're so early in their life compared to ours, they can see something and have a walk away with a completely different thought process or assumption than what maybe you were thinking. Um, So instilling (laughs) strong work ethic, you know, I see this with clients and I understand how challenging it is with teenagers, you know, the desire, they're so busy with all their school activities and now like studying for college tests, et cetera, that the temptation is to not make them have family chores or to not make them work but they learn so much from working on their own and from having that outside job. It creates infrastructure, you know, to, when they get like having a paycheck, talking about putting money in retirement accounts, talking about taxes, it was, again, especially with teenagers, because they don't like to talk to you about many things, putting something in context of their life just makes it so much more meaningful. Um, and I see this with allowance. I'm a big fan of allowance because it creates that consistent opportunity to talk about money. And it allows you as a parent to say yes to anything that's aligned in our values. Like particularly young kids, you may not like, you may or may not let them buy a toy gun if that's in, in line with your values, but you can always say, yes, you can buy that. If you have the money, when they have a lo- allowance, the benefit of allowance is you're allowing them to have access to money so they can make choices. And people will say, well, what if they spend it on candy? What if they spend it on something I don't want them to? It's like they will. That's how they learn. But 100%. wouldn't you rather have them do that at a young age when they're home right. and you can coach them on it rather than when they're in college and beyond and you're not there to have those conversations? So you have to let the children make tough choices and you have to let them learn from it. And it is it can be painful, but almost for sure those tough choices early in life are going to be less you know less costly than the choices they're going to make longer term with too much credit card debt or who knows what and then you want to help them encourage generosity as well you know volunteering time and money and you know what a good feeling people get out of that helping them appreciate you know especially for you know clients like ours that they do have a lot a lot of times they their um, peer group at school you know and Sports and life might be very similar to them. So helping them tie money back to how you can help people and create opportunities is really a healthy thing as well. I love it. That's really, really good advice. I always like to say the painful part is short-term pain, but long-term gain. So it's always good to start sooner rather than later. I love it. Exactly. So um, I guess the next question I have for you is what's the best piece of advice you'd like to share with the audience? Have clarity on what's really, really important to you. Get expert expert help, and then you know execute well. Have the discipline to do it. Clarity and execution. I love it. 
What about some books? What are some of your favorite books that you've read, whether market books or outside of market books? Uh, well, on parenting, there's a book called Raised Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. Um, and so I read that after I had already had a presentation on raising financially intelligent children, but it's, it's very much in line with what I believe. And it, it was it was written from a perspective of what did families who raised, really wealthy families who raised kids that were responsible with money, what did they do well? You hear so much about all the bad stories. It was fun to read. What do people do well? Um, and then, oh, so many other things. I like to listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to Peter Bregman's leadership podcast. Uh, he has a great book for seconds, 18 minutes. Uh, we read a lot of Patrick Lencioni at the firm, um, for our whole team. Our, our team is very, very, you know, cult, our, we have a team culture. Like our, when, B, when someone chooses BDF, they choose BDF because of our team, not because of Heather, or Mark Veloss, or Armand and Verno. It's because we have 65 people working together for them and they'll have three or four people really intimately work with them. So thank you very much, Heather, for uh, for coming on the show. What is the, I know we have a disclaimer we want to get to, and just to clarify on my end, everything on the show, whether it's today's episode or any episode, there's no specific investment advice given whatsoever. Everything is general in nature and for educational, informational purposes only. But um, can you, uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, so we'd love for people to check out our website. It's bdfllc.com. Or they can always email me. My email is hlocus, H-L-O-C-U-S, at bdfllc.com. And as you said, for compliance, we want to make sure that everybody's aware that the Lassa Denvernal Folds LLC, better known as BDF, does not serve as an attorney account nor insurance agent. BDF does not prepare estate planning documents or tax returns, nor do we sell insurance products. We ask you that you see our important disclosure information in the notes of this podcast. Um, and you can also get a copy of our written disclosure statement discussing our advisory service and fees uh, at our website, bdfllc.com, or email me and I'll send you one at request. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for coming on the show today. Thanks, Adam. Really enjoyed it. Likewise.